Uh, when I first shared what I was going to talk about today with Becca and the rest of the, the praise team, Becca responded right away with that song. She said, I have a song that I think fits so well, and I agree with, with that. What I have to share with you today, that idea of, of help me to love with open arms like you do, help us to love others the way that Christ has loved us. And there's that phrase from the homeless to the famous and in between. And today I want to talk about the in-between, the people that we see on a day-to-day basis, the people that we have history with. Now, we've been in a series going through the book of Ephesians, and we're in chapter 5 and chapter 6 today. If you have your Bibles, we're going to spend a lot of time looking at chapter 5 and chapter 6 of the book of Ephesians. And so if you want to follow along, you can. We'll have words on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you. And uh, the verse that starts off our passage today, I want to share that with you. It, it starts in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. And it says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That word submit, uh, it, it has a real negative connotation. Uh, when we hear that word submit, I don't know many of us who really enjoy that word. I don't know many of us who, when we hear that word, we go, great, I'm so glad. I love to submit, and I'm glad Pastor Tony's going to tell us how we can do that today. You know, when we think of submit, a lot of times we think of, of dominate. We think no one wants to be dominated, and I don't want to be dominated. And so submit, I don't want to submit. But what the writer here is saying is that one of the ways that we show our reverence for Christ is in the way that we submit one to another. The passage that we're in is at the end of Ephesians, and so we need to talk a little bit about context. It was meant to be read after reading the beginning part of Ephesians, and actually it was meant to be read in the context of an understanding of the whole Bible. You see the Bible is 66 books, and they're really broken into different categories. The first half, or more than half really, is what we call the Old Testament. In Jesus' day, he would have referred to the Old Testament as the Law and the Prophets. And then in the New Testament, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the four Gospels. They're the story of the good news of Jesus. And the good news is that Jesus gives us new life. Jesus came to earth at Christmas time, or at least we celebrated at Christmas time, and he went about expounding and teaching about the law and the prophets. And Jesus raised a lot of questions that he didn't answer. Jesus taught in parables that people didn't understand. Jesus would answer a question with a question a lot of times, and Jesus created a lot of confusion among a lot of different people. Even his closest disciples would come to him after his sermons and say, what did you mean? Now, nobody came to me after the first service and asked that, so I guess I'm a better preacher than Jesus. I don't know. No, I don't think that that's true. I don't think that that's true at all, but Jesus raised a lot of questions, and then he went to the cross, and he died for us, and he rose again. But right before he went to the cross, Jesus did something that I believe is pivotal. It really kind of changes the direction of the scripture. From that point on, the scripture is different. The Bible is different. Uh, Jesus called together his disciples for the Last Supper. You know, we know the picture of Jesus and his 12 disciples. And Jesus did something just amazing, just really astounding. Jesus put on the, the garb of a servant, and he got down on his hands and knees, and he washed his disciples' feet. He did the lowliest job he could possibly do. He stepped out of his position into another position, and he served his disciples. And then in John chapter 13, verse 34, right after he washes their feet, he says this, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. 
In context, Jesus had just washed their feet, and directly after that, Jesus went to the cross and willingly died for them. And so the Gospels conclude, and they go on to the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, where the Apostles try to figure out, how do we live this out? Jesus gave us this new command. We had an old command that was like it. The old command was, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. It was, love your neighbor as yourself. But this is a new command. And really, the only person that can give a new command is God himself. You see, the the teachers of the law and the priests, they would have expounded on God's command, but they would never dream of giving a new command. But Jesus gives a new command, that we love one another as he has loved us. And so through the Acts and the epistles, the letters to the church, it's the early Christians, the first century Christians, trying to figure out, in light of what Jesus has done for us, how do we then love each other like he loved us? How do we apply that to our lives? And how is that going to shape and change our lives? You know, the Apostle John, he writes in his gospel, he writes in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. This is John's gospel. He's writing the story of Jesus and what Jesus did. But in John's epistle, John writes a letter to the early church after Jesus has rose again and the Holy Spirit has come on the church. John writes in 1 John, and it's just a fun coincidence that it's 1 John 3.16 as well. He says this. In 1 John 3.16, John says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. You see, that this new way of living affects every area of our lives. It affects how we think. It affects our hearts. It affects our spirits. It affects our relationships with everyone. And in the early church, they were figuring it out. And, and it took them a long time to figure it out. You know, it, it helps us maybe to remember that, that 10 chapters into the book of Acts, God had to have a conversation with Peter and say, Peter, it's not okay for you to be a racist anymore. You need to go and you need to spend time with Gentiles. You know, God came to Peter and said, Peter, go to Cornelius' house. And Peter said, I've never done anything filthy and I'm not about to start right now. And God said, no, no, no. This new way of loving each other affects our relationships in every area of our society. And so the early church, they were struggling to figure it out. If you don't believe that they were struggling to figure it out, read First and Second Corinthians. They were struggling to figure it out. And so... This letter to the Ephesians is really a letter to the first century church going through this new way of living. And so we've been in a series over the last couple of weeks, really the last seven weeks, where we looked at what Ephesians has to say about our new identity as children of God. We're no longer deriving our identity from our family or our culture, but we're deriving our identity from God. We have a new hope in the sacrifice of Jesus. My hope isn't based on what I can accomplish in this life, but on what Christ has already accomplished. We have this new life through the Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us and and helps us to do the the things that he calls us to do. We have a new community united by the love of Jesus. If, If you are a son or a daughter of God, that makes you my brother and my sister, and it makes the way that we interact differently. And if if God made everyone in his image, then every person that we interact with is the image of God, and we should treat them like that. We should show our love to other people. We should show our love to God in the way that we love other people. We have a new community. I'm trying not to preach those sermons, but I get excited about these things. Uh, We have a new power to understand God and to follow him. We have new standards. Chapter 4 takes this this term where it says, 
Therefore, now live a life worthy of the calling because you have this calling, live this life. And so we have new standards as we follow Jesus' example. And last week, Josh taught us about how these new standards affect the way that we interact with each other. And then we went out and we put it into practice with Impact Weekend. We joined with 700 other volunteers in serving in a variety of different ways throughout our community and our nation and even the far reaches of the world. Some of the projects that we did went overseas and we were serving people that that weren't going to thank us necessarily, that weren't going to pay us back. We're serving people that we didn't know. And I want to share with you, I love doing those things. But I think sometimes, for me at least, maybe you're a better Christian than me, but for me at least, it's a lot easier for me to serve people that I don't know than people that I do know. You know, I can, I can really spur myself on to good works, and I can do something for a weekend. But to deal with the same people day after day after day, it can be a lot harder to live out the Christian life with the people that are closest to us. And so the writer of Ephesians continues on from how we deal with our community to how we deal with the specific people that we see on a regular basis. And he addresses three areas in particular, our marriages, the relationship between parents and children, and our relationships at work. And so we address this idea, how do we love people How do we love one another as Christ has loved us? How do we submit to one another out of reverence to Christ with the people that we see every day? So let's talk about work. If you have your Bibles, flip over to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. We're going to work from the latter to the former. We're going to work backwards through here and find ourselves back again at that first verse. This is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Uh, I'm so glad to be a part of Clarkston Community Church, to be a part of CCC. I've been here for just over a year, uh, and I'm from Michigan, so I'm glad to be back uh, near family. As a matter of fact, my mom is here today, and I'm so glad that she gets to be here uh, because I had spent time in Kansas and in Texas. I'd been far away. Uh, But I I love this community. I love the people of CCC, and I love the staff that I get to work with. Uh, And you may not know this about Clarkston Community Church, but we are a part of a movement of churches called the Church of God. Uh, specifically the Church of God, Anderson, Indiana, which is a long, clunky name for a really beautiful theology that we have. And it's that there are a few core tenets in the Bible that that are absolutely irrefutable. There are some things in the Bible that, that are so important. There are some things in our faith that we are absolutely sure about. But there are a lot of things that we can have grace with. And if you believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh and he died for your sins and he rose again and the Holy Spirit lives in you, then you are a member of our church. And we can disagree on a lot of different things, but that love of Christ is going to drive our love for each other. And there is more that unites us than divides us. But I wasn't always a part of this denomination. I grew up in the Southern Baptist tradition. And uh, somebody here knows what that means. (laughs) Somebody (laughs) Uh, in the Southern Baptist tradition, I'm so grateful for for the, the emphasis on Scripture that I grew up with. I grew up with a real appreciation for the Bible. Uh, However, the the Southern Baptist Convention uh, that I grew up with took a very literal interpretation of the Bible. 
It was a phrase that we would use. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, and that's it. And so this very literal interpretation actually is the foundation of, of the Southern Baptist wing. The Southern Baptist Convention was formed in 1845 because of verses like this and others like it that seem to reference slavery. In 1845, the Southern Baptists said, the Bible says slavery, we believe in slavery, and that settles it. And as a matter of fact, all the way up until the 1950s in, in Southern Baptist seminaries, there were still proponents of slavery and segregation because of such a literal interpretation of the Scripture. The reason I'm passionate about this is because it has real-world ramifications. The way that we approach the Scripture actually changes the way that we live our lives. But we know that that's not true. You know, we know that that's not the way that we would interpret this. We know that when we look at this, we understand that the writer here is writing to first-century Christians. And so his reference of slavery and masters, I would say that it's descriptive rather than prescriptive. He's describing the culture and the structures that these people are living in. He's not prescribing and saying, this is the right way to live, because he's not talking about slavery. He's talking about submission. He's saying, in whatever context you're in, you should submit. He's, he's illustrating a, a principle, not a precept. A precept is like a law. He's not saying, this is the social order that you should have forever. He's saying, this is the social order that is here right now, and wherever you are, you should apply this principle of submission one to another out of reverence for Christ. And if you're a slave, then you should submit to your master out of reverence for Christ. And if you're a master, you should treat your slave in the same way. If you're a master, you should submit yourself to your servants out of reverence for Christ because you remember that you have the same master and he doesn't show any kind of favoritism. You know, we're entering the Christmas season and I love everything about Christmas. And I especially love Christmas songs. One of my favorite Christmas songs is O Holy Night. And like, I think it's the third verse of O Holy Night. There's this phrase, chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. We sing that loud and we all agree with it. But when it was written, that was controversial. That was a statement at that moment. Because it took us nearly 2,000 years to apply the teachings of Jesus, that we should treat one another with respect and submit a reverence for Christ. It took us almost 2,000 years to go, I don't think that we can have slavery anymore. I don't think that we can have these two ideas. I don't think they're compatible. It took us a long time to apply that to our culture, but it's important for us to remember that the teachings of Jesus have shaped and changed the relationships that we have at work, and the teachings of Jesus need to continue to change and shape the relationships that we have at work. One of the early Christian reformers, John Calvin, said it this way, For a king, if he be Christian, ought to regard his meanest, that means his lowliest, his meanest subject as superior to himself, in the sense of having a greater claim on him than he has on himself, since his meanest subjects, subject is Christ's representative to him. When you go to work and you look at the person as made in the image of God, it will change the way that you interact with that person. When you go to work and you say, the way that I show my love for God is the way that I treat this person, it'll change the way you treat that person. Both the people that report to you and the people that you report to. Now, I, had, I had a moment this morning that, that I just really want to share with you. Uh, I had this moment before our first service where normally we meet together with the prayer team, but our pastor has been uh, in Israel, and he forgot to send that reminder, so the prayer team didn't show up, uh, but I think it may have been providential, because who did show up 
was our new youth director, Jesse Hargett, and our senior pastor, Greg Henneman. And so I got to sit in a chair and have the young man that reports directly to me and the man who I report directly to both pray with me. And, and although there has to be some kind of a structure in work so that we can get things done and know how to make decisions, although we have to have some kind of a structure, in that moment and really day to day, we treat, our, we treat each other as co-workers. We treat each other as like brothers. We treat each other as like part of the same family. We, we, we submit to one another in a variety of different ways. And so in that moment, I thought, you know, the way that I treat Greg should be a mirror image of the way that I treat Jesse. It wouldn't be right for me to say that I prioritize Greg because I have something to gain from him, but I don't prioritize Jesse because he works for me. It wouldn't, that wouldn't be right. It wouldn't be right to do things out of selfish ambition. It wouldn't be right to do that. But Paul says it this way in Philippians 2.3. He makes it the most clear. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourselves. Regardless of their position on the organizational chart, consider other people more important than yourself. Consider their career advancement more important than your own. Consider their reputation more important than your own. Consider their work-life balance more important than your own. Consider other people more important than yourself. What would it look like, Christians, if we went to work and decided today, I'm going to love my coworker like Jesus loves me? How would it change our relationships at work? There's a phrase I want to teach you. It's very simple, and you can apply it in every area of your life. It's this, what can I do for you? What can I do for you. You know, we use the example of the janitor, but it's a good example. In your place of work, if you go to the janitor and go, can I help you with anything? I mean, their job might hit the floor, but there's a lot of people probably between you and the janitor, and there's probably a lot of people between you and the CEO, depending on where you're at. Regardless of where someone is, ask yourself, what can I do for that, rather than what can I do for myself? So work is kind of a safe place to meddle. Uh, let's meddle in our homes. Let's look at the beginning of chapter 6. How do we treat our children and how do we treat our parents? This is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Uh, let's start with that message to fathers. Uh, you know, again, this is the first century. The father was the head of the household. The father was in charge of the direction of the family. Uh, I know, because I work with your children, that there are a variety of different families represented here. There are single dads and single moms. There are grandparents and uncles that are raising their kids. There are some of you that are, that are in second or third marriages, and there's confusion about who exactly is the parent and the step-parent and the grandparent. Family is diverse, but the application of this message is, is universal. So it's not just fathers. It's fathers, mothers, parents. If you care enough to take responsibility for a child, this message is for you. And the message is, don't exasperate your children. I, I like the way that that's phrased, because exasperate isn't necessarily a specific verb. It's not a specific thing that you do. It's actually a result. It's don't do anything that causes your children to become exasperated. And I don't know if you use the word exasperate in your day-to-day -day life, and so I want to lend a little bit of clarity. What does it look like for a child to be exasperated? I was listening to Kanye West's new album, 
It's all about his, uh, his faith and how he's beginning to follow God. And in the song, Follow God, he says it this way. He says, man, you know, it's like somebody only close to you who can get you like off your game. I'll be on my game. I woke up this morning. I said my prayers. I'm all good. Then I try to talk to my dad, give him some advice. He starts spazzing on me. I start spazzing back. And he said, that ain't Christ-like. And I said, ah! If your kids are spazzing out and saying, ah, they might be exasperated. And the way the writer here illustrates this call to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ is, parents, you may be right. You probably are right. But still choose to lay yourself down and set yourself aside and choose to not exasperate your children. You know if you are a parent. You know that you can be absolutely right, but say it in the wrong way. And you know that a lot of times being happy and getting the desired results is better than being right. Maybe I'll say it this way. You can't reason with a child because children are not reasonable. And so you have to set yourself aside sometimes and not exasperate your children, but rather bring them up in the teaching and instruction of the Lord. That that phrase, the teaching and instruction of the Lord, the early Christians had a really strong Jewish heritage, and they would have immediately known that that was a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Shema, that this is, hear, O Lord, or hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, you shall have no other gods, and you shall teach these things to your children when they rise up, when you lie down, as you walk along the way, you shall bind these teachings on your hands and on your foreheads, you shall write them on your doorposts. When he says you should bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord, they would have went Deuteronomy. That's what we're told. We're told the most important thing is not to exasperate our children and get the best results out of them, but to teach them in the instruction of the Lord. And in context, the, the message that he had to children, children, obey your parents, which is the first commandment with the promise, that's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 4. This is Deuteronomy, the, the expounding on the law in the Old Testament, and it's children, obey your parents so that your days may go long and it may go well with you. Uh, but Deuteronomy chapter 14 says that we can only eat animals that have a cloven hoof and chew the cut. And so if you have ever had bacon-wrapped shrimp, you don't believe in Deuteronomy. So you have to understand the context. He's speaking to people who would have known and applied this message. It's not a new command, obey your parents. You know, there are some things that change culturally, but one thing that I'm pretty sure about is that parents are older than their children. I'm pretty sure, not great at math, but I'm pretty sure parents are usually older than their children. And so throughout history, it's almost like, obviously, children are going to obey their parents. That's a command for everybody in all time. But the command there is not so much a new command or an emphasis on that. It's saying, children, don't just obey your parents so that you can get something. Don't just obey your parents because of what bad thing might happen to you. But in context of what we've said before all through Ephesians, obey your parents as a way of showing your reverence for Christ. It's not just that it's a command, but it's actually a way that you show the love of Jesus. And that's not exclusive just to little kids. If you have a parent in your life, you can submit to your parent, you can show reverence to your parent, you can show honor and respect to your parent. And that's a way that you can show your love for Christ. Remember Jesus's example in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right before he went to the cross, he prayed and he prayed, Father God, if it would be possible, let this cup pass from you saying, God, I don't want to go to the cross. And if there's any way that I cannot do it, please, I don't want to do it. But he said, but not my will, but yours be done. This is a great example for us as children. If there's any way that we can try to obey our parents 
out of reverence for Christ. And so parents and children both ways. How would it change your relationship if when you looked at your parent, you decided, I'm not going to, to honor you uh, just because you deserve it. I'm not going to honor you uh, because you've earned it. I'm not going to honor you because of our relationship, but I'm going to honor you out of reverence to Christ. What would it look like, parents, if you looked at your children and you said, I am going to treat you the way that Jesus has treated me. I'm going to show you the same love and patience that Jesus has shown me. I'm actually going to live out my faith in the way that I treat my parents and in the way that I treat my children. How would it change that relationship? You know, I believe in our current culture, I think that we put more value and emphasis on our children than at any point in human history. I can't think of another time or another culture where children have such a cherished and elevated status. And I think that, that we can trace that directly to the teachings of Christ. You know, the way that Jesus treated children and the way that the early Christians treated children was, was unfathomable. It was, it was incomprehensible. The early uh, Gentiles, the early non-believers couldn't understand why would these Christians go and adopt these children that were left down by the river and take care of them? Why would they take care of their children? Why would they adopt people? Why would they take care of their children, uh, of their neighbor's children? Why would they do this? Why would they care about kids? You know, Jesus said, let the little children come to me. And so parents, if we want to live out our faith, if we want to continue to live out our faith, we need to remember that Jesus' teachings have changed and shaped the way that parents and children interact. And Jesus' teachings need to continue to change and shape the way that parents and children interact. So if I haven't stepped on anybody's toes yet, uh, then I guess I'm doing okay. But we're going to step into marriage and see what happens. You know, I think it's, before we get into this passage, I just don't want to say, I don't know how it is that no one else wanted to preach this particular passage when we chose Ephesians. No, I'm joking. I volunteered. I really did want to preach this passage because I've heard it shared out of context so many times and I've seen the damage that it can cause. And so I really want to try to expound on it in the context of the whole of Scripture and especially in the context of Ephesians. And so, so that you don't think I'm making it up, let's read together what the writer says to wives and husbands. This is starting in verse 22. Remember that 21 was submit yourselves one to another. Verse 22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and they care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. And here's a quote from Genesis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Remember the, the Christian tradition that I came from. I, I so appreciate the emphasis on Scripture that we have, but I often heard this passage preached out of context, and I heard it preached as a prescription for Christian marriages. 
that, that this is a, a description of what the gender roles, not what they were, but what they should be today. But you have to remember that this was not written to the 21st century church. This was written to the 1st century church, specifically in, in a predominantly Greek area. And so the command there is not wives submit to your husbands. No one would have had to tell wives to submit to their husbands because they all would have already been submitted to their husbands at this point in time. You know, to elaborate or maybe illustrate the first century context, the first century culture that the writer's writing to, uh, let's hear from one of their philosophers. Aristotle put it this way. The male is by nature superior and the female inferior. The man the ruler and the female the subject. This would have been the predominant ideology of Greek culture at the time. Even within the Jewish religion, uh, a common Jewish prayer at this time in the first century would have been this. Praise be to God that he did not make me a Gentile, a pig, or a woman. This is the context that he's writing into. And so I believe that the writer here is applying the principles of Christ, that we should show our love for God in the way that we love one another and we should treat one another the way that Christ has treated us. He's applying it to their context as much as they could possibly handle and maybe a little bit more. And so I hope to follow in that tradition and maybe apply it to our context as much as we could handle and maybe a little bit more. Paul, when he writes to the Galatians, he puts it this way. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, the way that Jesus treated women and the way that the early Christians incorporated women into the church and into ministry, the way that Jesus elevated the role of women was controversial at the time, to say the least. And Jesus' emphasis on women has changed and shaped the gender roles in our relationship. And it continues to shape the way that we look at one another. I still remember the moment when I was a teenager when I realized, girls are people. It was this moment. I was actually, I was reading a book. Uh, it, was, it was a women's book. It was like a book. It was a Christian book written to women about the relationship that, that a, a woman would have with God. And I thought, women have a relationship with God. They have the Holy Spirit inside them. God chooses to express himself in the world through women. That should change the way that I treat the women in my life. That should change the way that, that, that I relate to them. You see, Paul is not prescribing the way that we should have our Christian marriages. He, he's, he's describing the way that the first century church can live out this call to submit one to another. Here, as a matter of fact, in the original Greek, the word submit is not in verse 22. The word submit is in verse 21. Verse 21 says, submit yourselves one to another out of reverence for Christ. And verse 22 says, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. You see, Greek grammar would have meant that you could bring in the verb in the first sentence, and then you could have the verb be assumed in the second sentence. You know, an example would be like, Tony went to church, and he opened the door, and he walked in, and then he preached a sermon. You know that all those he's are Tony. It's the same. Grammatically here, the submit is not specific to, to wives and husbands. The submit is throughout. It's wives submit to husbands. Husbands submit to wives. Parents submit to your children, and children submit to your parents. Slaves submit to your masters, and masters submit to your slaves. All of you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so let's look at this passage one more time with a little bit of a different perspective. That first verse 
His wives, submit to your husbands. But we have to remember that in Romans chapter 7, Paul says, Husbands, your bodies don't belong to you, but your bodies belong to your wives. And wives, your bodies don't belong to you, but your bodies belong to your husbands. So this call to submission is not exclusive. We actually both need to submit to each other. He's just referencing how to express this in the particular context to wives. And so next it says, for the husband is the head. You know, I don't know about you, but I know that my head can do very little without my body. That's funny. Headless people are funny. And most of the decisions that I make from my head are, are, are made for the furtherance of my body. You know, like I look both ways when I cross the street, not exclusively for my head, but I want my whole body to survive that, that interaction with the street. Most of the decisions that we make, it's, it's codependent. It's working together. Headship is not like lordship or domination. Headship means that you work together. And you could even say the question there, the husband is the head. Well, I'm sure that he is the head in this particular instance. We know that, but there's questions even now. You could say, you know, how do you translate that? Maybe the husband is the head, but now it's more that we work together and we're co uh, co-partners in this marriage. It says, in everything. I, I've heard people say uh, that this verse, for the husband is the head of the wife, and then the next verse is that the wife should submit to the husband in everything. I've heard people say this, that you should apply this to your life. Um, Romans chapter 14, Paul says, women should not speak in church, that they should be silent in the assembly, and they should only learn from their parents. And so somebody needs to buy Becca a Bible. I don't know. That's funny. That's funny. We like Becca. <laughs> and I'm so glad that she leads us. And I'm so glad that she speaks in church. You know, we understand that there's context and we apply our understanding of context to the whole of scripture, to all these other passages. And we should apply this understanding that this is written in a first century context to this scripture as well. And then we take the turn. It's a lot easier for me to preach the second half because I'm a man and I can preach to men. I can be a little bit hard on you guys because I'm hard on myself. Um, but when it talks to the men, in the second, in the next verse, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. You really have to ask yourself, have you read your Gospels? Do you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? What exactly did Jesus do for the church? He laid himself down for the church. He gave himself up. He, he allowed himself to humble himself, and he allowed himself even to be humiliated for the sake of the church. And he gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water, through the word. And the next one is about presenting. Let's see that next verse. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. This is like a deep theological idea that Jesus loved us so much that he did everything that he had to do to make us into the kind of people that he could have a relationship with. We were so broken and we were so far from him. We were so contrary to him. We were so contrary to who he made us to be that he couldn't be with us. But he gave himself up so that he could be with us. There's another place where Paul talks to wives. And he says, this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he says, wives, if you're married to an unbelieving husband, don't divorce them because they're not a believer, but stay with them. And maybe in the way that you live out your faith, they might come to faith. You know, what if in our marriages, we had that same mindset of Christ, both husband and wives. We looked and we said, I'm going to do everything that I can do to make you into the kind of person that, that, that I can get along with. 
rather than saying, I'm going to try to make you do what I want, I'm going to do everything that I can to try to create an environment where you can grow into the person that Christ wants you to be. I'm going to set aside my wants and my desires so that I can give you what you need so that you can grow into the person that you're supposed to be. This is what God did for us. He laid himself down for our needs. He set aside his needs for ours. And so this call is not just to husbands or just to wives, but it's to husbands and wives together. Submit yourselves one to another. Choose to do what the other person needs. Of course we care for our wives, and of course we care for our husbands. This next verse is that you know the head, of course, in the same way we ought to love our wives as we love our own bodies because we're part of the same. There's this amazing mystery, uh, and I love it, this idea that my wife goes and does things on my behalf without me. And I just, I love it. Like I come home and the bills are paid and they're her bills and my bills, but she paid them during the day and I didn't have to do it. That, that we work together. There's this idea that, that the more that we work together, it's like we're the same person. We're part of each other. The way that you love your spouse is really the way that you love yourself and the way that you show that you love God. But remember this next verse, he's kind of drifting and he's talking about how in Genesis, we leave our father and mother and we cleave to another when we become one. And if we ever thought that maybe he was trying to expound on what marriage should be like, he says this, but he says, but remember, I'm talking about Christ in the church. Paul's not giving us a dissertation on marriage. He's applying this idea of the way that Christ works with us to the way that we work in our marriage. He's not describing the, the way that everyone should have a marriage, but he's saying in your context, as much as you can, try to love your spouse the way that Jesus loved the church. And I like how it ends, this idea that husbands should love their wives and wives should respect their husbands. I, I've heard it taught, I've heard it taught often that what wives really need is love and what husbands really need is respect. That these are exclusive, that these are that these are assigned to the genders, that husbands need respect from their wives and that wives need love for their husbands. But I know that Aretha Franklin wants R-E-S-P-E-C-T. I know it. And I know that John, Paul, George, and Ringo said that all we need is love. This is not gender specific here. This is husbands and wives. Love and respect one another. Love and respect one another. And remember, the only person in the world that you have any control over is yourself. And you have a hard enough time controlling that person. All that you can do is decide that I am going to lay myself down. I'm going to love and respect my spouse. And now, I know, the people who are not married yet, you think you're off the hook, but you're not. If you're not married, great, you can start practicing this even now. Even now, the people that are around you of either gender, you can choose to love and respect them. You can practice putting other people first even today. In your dating relationship, you can start by asking, what does this person really need? And you might ask yourself, does this person really need me? And when I talk to middle school boys, I say, you know, if you really love your neighbor as yourself, this little middle school seventh grade guy, look at that girl and say, does she really need a seventh grade boy in her life? Is that really going to enhance her life and draw her closer to Christ? Chances are probably not. You can practice this in your dating relationships and in your friendships, submitting yourself one to another out of reverence for Christ. And so what does it look like for you at work? with your children, with your spouse? What does it look like for you to put others first? What does it look like for you in, in the light of what Christ has done for you? What does it look like 
for you to love other people as he loved you. And the question I want to leave you with is, will you go first? Will you go first? You see, the people in our lives day to day, they failed us. There have been times where we've had an expectation that they didn't meet, and it can be easy for us to think, well, if they would just, then I would. But will you go first? There's times where we think, you know, I want to do this thing for them, but they've never done this thing for me, and so if they would just, then I would. My question for you is, would you go first? In light of what Jesus has done for you, would you go first? In Romans chapter 5, Paul says it this way, you see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, so you won't die for someone who's just not broken any laws, but maybe for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were completely opposed to everything that God stood for, he died for us. When he knew full well that we were going to reject him and turn away from him, he, he died for us. When he knew that we might never love him back, he died for us. And so in light of Jesus' command to love others as he loved us, will you lay yourself down for the people closest to you, for your spouse, for your friends, for your parents and your children, for the people that you work for and the people that work for you? Will you choose while they're still sinners, to lay yourself down for them? Will you choose to follow God? This is a hard thing. It's a hard thing to do. And the writer goes on to describe it as, as a battle. It's a fight. I like to say that as Christians, we have three enemies. We have the world, the flesh, and the devil. And all three of those are aligned against the teachings of Christ. All three of those would tell you that everything that you need is in you. That's all about you, and you should live for yourself and take what you can get. It might makes right. You have the world and the flesh and the devil that you're fighting against every day, and you need God on your side to do that. And that's why I hope that you'll come back next week and hear Pastor Greg wrap up our sermon on Ephesians.